Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Yuval Dahlqvist. This is Sadia Bhatti. And this is Brian Kodak. And we are your co-host for another episode of this, the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% anticipation because we are very soon together in the same room. That is good. I'm highly anticipating that. Finally. I think it's going to be the first time. It's like night day ever. fiance. We're no, but it's meet. like we're literally gonna ever be in the same room, like forever. I don't think we've ever been in the same room. The oh, three that's of us true. Together. That's really? true. Yeah, yeah I think the so. first time I met Saudi. No, I met Saudi before, but then we had a coffee when I like semi like interviewed her slash goaded her <laughs> into taking on this task. <laughs> oh, it's funny. I'm looking forward to that moment. We're gonna be all the three of us together. Yeah, it'll be really nice. But where, where are we right now? Where are you, Brian? I am actually at home in a storm. Are we in a new storm, Sadia? Storm yes. Sierra? Storm, storm Ken? Storm Barbie? I don't know what we're in. But it is, it is really coming down here, Joel. It is like proper London rain. Um, so I'm inside. Yes. Where are you, Sadia? I confirm. I am in Cambridge, actually, and uh, it's the same situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the storm here as well. It's not looking good. And Joel? I am at home, more or less, in Stockholm, where it's not stormy as far as I can tell, and everything is calm. Do you still call that home? I don't know. I just realized as I said it out loud that I don't really have a home anymore. <laughs> I used to say that when I was at, in Stockholm, I would say, oh, I'm going home for the holidays. And they're like, this is your home. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to Los Angeles. <laughs> at some point, you have to switch. Exactly. But I am coming to London uh, two days from now, and we will record together and hopefully have some fun together as well when we're finally all together. Is it a personal or professional capacity that you will be joining us? Uh, it is uh, professional uh, since I work for Arbitration Chambers in London. So there right. will be a, a lot more of London coming up. Great. Hopefully you can get in. Yeah, but let's not open that particular Pandora's box. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. <laughs> well, let's instead open, open the IA Reporter box, uh, our sponsor. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I give that segue <laughs> two out of five. <laughs> In case you didn't know, iReporter is our sponsor for season four. It's an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a series of case profiles on more than 1,300 investor state arbitrations including easily searchable data on arbitrators, counsel, and key developments in each case. So to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. Thank you. And we have one more plug, which is the fourth ICC European Conference, which is taking place in Paris on the 1st of April. That is a Wednesday, and it is not a full... Oh, no, the 2nd of April is the... Um, Sorry, the 2nd of April is the conference. The training is on the 1st of April. Um, fooled you there. Um, and we have a special code. It is The early bird session is over, but you'll still get the 10% discount code on the normal rates if you just type in ARB-10. That's ARB-10. Um, when you go online, the short link is iccwbo.org slash ICCEuropean. And they will be uh, tackling some fun segments that we'll actually be covering in some capacity on the podcast um, about document production and data protection as far as party promulgated document requests. 
um, and they get into some case scenarios. And uh, one or a few of us will be there. Um, so introduce yourself so we can, you know, mingle with the listeners and show that you guys are actually engaging. Yes. Looking that always makes me, me uncomfortable, though. I don't know about you guys. Not, not that I'm being stopped on the street on a daily basis, but it's happened a few <laughs> times. Someone recognized really? my voice. Yeah, and it's, it's always a bit freaky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. when your voice is the recognizable feature. I did that to you, Jewel, remember? In the train, I was like, oh my gosh, are you the podcast guy? I love you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and look how far we come. Yeah, exactly. It's set a whole thing in motion. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think we're getting stopped in the streets. Although it's true, funny enough, now sometimes in conferences, I'm like, oh, hello. And they're like, oh, I know you. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> they're like, no, 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 I know I know you from the podcast. I was like, oh, wow, that's great, great. It's funny yeah. how quick it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had a, I had a conversation with, with a, a lawyer in this business who asked me a, a while into the conversation if, if my end goal was to go back into academia. And I was like, I, I never told you that I, I worked in academia. Oh. <laughs> and then it came out that it was through the podcast. And it was like information that had not been inserted into the conversation but came from somewhere else. Do people oh. ask do people ask you how's your blog going? Yeah, older yeah. people, older boomers. Like, how's the blog? I was like, uh, what? What do you mean? Oh, they, well, they just the like blog. don't they don't understand the format, so they're like, uh, how's the blog? I was like, I'm not like a teenager <laughs> taking pictures of my meals. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, it's basically what it is, though. It's I know, we're repeat. like, yeah, <laughs> it's the metaphor of taking pictures of our meals. This podcast. Uh, but Sadia, I think you're going to give us a bit more of a substantive topic to chew on this episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, actually, I'm looking forward to this. Actually, talking about food, uh, I am going to speak about a food fight. Uh, <laughs> right. So it's going to be a food fight uh, decision. It's a recent decision uh, called Kebab G versus Coach Food Group, and uh, we're going to use it as an anchor actually to speak about something more general that. Uh, has been the talk of uh, the town, <laughs> the London town, at least for a while. Um, and also in Paris, which is the difference between London and Paris as uh, arbitral seats. So we're speaking about that. Amazing. That, that's going to be really good. And because that it's going to be so good, we will just oh my limit gosh. <laughs> the episode to that uh, as a substantive segment. And then we will get into the happy fun time topic where I will do something I am passionate about which is short commands on word processing systems you may think that is a mundane topic but actually i when i was um researching to give some examples um on this segment it the it came up i i, I googled like short commands useful for lawyers and there were so many posts um published about how to become an efficient lawyer that's how it's been um been formatted uh, in, in the things that I have read. So I actually think it does help with efficiency. Um, and usually, you know, when you're calling IT or you're calling your doc services, if you have that, you know, resource in your firm, um, it takes up so much time and you're like footnoting and the format gets messed up. And then you have this document that's, a, you know, gobbledygook and you can't get out of it. So hopefully we can shed some light on how to be a more efficient lawyer using short commands. Mm. <laughs> Have my yes, talks I'm looking up. forward to that. And <laughs> yes. question, yeah, we all need to be um, faster and more efficient in our daily day life. So really looking forward to that segment. Actually. Although before we move there, we actually have a few things to, to pick up on from previous episodes, I think. One thing yeah. is that we made a mistake. We make mistakes all the time. And this might be a good uh, time to, to just reiterate that the policy is that we normally issue corrections on this we've been really wrong and several people have pointed it out one such example which i think sadia actually caught maybe with the, the help of a listener is that the singapore convention on on med mediation isn't in force right no we said it yeah. we said it was or that we assumed it was in fact it's just a bunch of states have have signed it no states have ratified it and exactly. you need a number of states right Although if I remember correctly, when we said that, then I said, no, we're not sure. Check. 
because oh, good. <laughs> the podcast good. on <laughs> it was the podcast on um, the ratification issue. Do you remember we were talking about that case involving Mozambique where the BIT was oh, right. uh, actually enforced? Um, so we did we did issue a caveat there um, on our certainty that it was enforced. But yeah, long story short, Singapore Convention is not enforced yet. Good call. Uh, good call with a with a caveat as well, like the experienced lawyer that you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, our mathematical preparer, we did note that in our submission. Yeah, yeah it's in a footnote in the post hearing. <laughs> yeah. Brief. And another thing that was pointed out is that there is no need for us, unlike what I promised, to make some sort of dictionary jargon book for uh, newcomers into the world of arbitration because there is one. It's uh, published in its first edition, which is ambitious in itself, <laughs> mm-hmm. anticipating um, updated editions, by the law firm Latham & Watkins. And I had envisioned that maybe I would do two pages of like acronyms, shorthands, and some key concepts. This is a hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm guessing a large group of uh, presumably associates have spent a lot of time on this because it is so thorough and so good. All the weird acronyms you're supposed to know, but also all the key concepts of arbitration, including like general comparative law and various like domestic law principles. I'm reading this and learning so much, uh, so I can recommend it. I have no idea uh, how I got it, but I would assume it's just Googling book of jargon, international arbitration or something like that. Actually, I confirmed that I think a lot of people have spent time on it just because I was mentioning it to some of our interns. I was like, guys, look at this. This is really cool. You should look at it. And one of the our stagiaire kind of shrugged and he was like, oh. I spent so much time on this. Please don't show it oh, to really? me again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. Crazy. So, but we can recommend it. It has it has the mm-hmm. uh, the unofficial endorsement of the arbitration station. That's is how it good just, it is. Is it just the glossary, or what's the format? Yeah. So it's it's A to to C, just uh, letter by letter, essentially, and it's uh, you know everything from I'm just reading now off of. Uh, IBA, IBA Arbitration Committee, IBA Ethics, and then it's like uh, ICC rules, ICJ, ICSID, Indian Institute, blah, 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 but it's also uh-huh. indirect expropriation, infra petita, injudicious yeah. remarks, injunctive relief, institute de droit international, institutional rules, so many good things with like small yeah. explanations for each. That's great. Yeah, it's also like definitions, like, you know, exactly like, you know, what is ultra petita mean or competence, competence, you know, stuff like that, which is interesting in addition to we'll, the rest. We'll put a link, actually. I don't know how many people actually go into the Arbitration Station webpage, but let's throw up a link uh, in the, uh, the the background in for the notes for this episode idea. so that people can find it. That's it for uh, preliminary issues, No. Yes, oh housekeeping. Oh my gosh, you're talking about yeah, housekeeping <laughs> issues, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> talking like a true secretary. Exactly. <laughs> uh, great. Well, let's move on. London versus Paris. Paris versus Londres. This has been a question on a lot of people's mind, especially since the Brexit has happened. <laughs> and also, more generally, you would not believe, I don't know, Brian, for you, but I get this question multiple times a month where, you know, our finance team or our projects team come to us and they're like, oh, we've got this arbitration agreement. Da, da, da. Uh, is it better to have Paris or London? What's the mean difference, please, in five minutes? Like what? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, does it, does it, have you had to deal with this question, Brian, before? Uh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I th- we thought it was really interesting because usually people talk about the differences, you know, battle between the seats, the core seats, you know, or, or you know, the new emerging seats. But we don't really talk about the difference between London and Paris. And recently there's been, uh, like we introduced um, in, this, in this podcast, uh, an interesting decision that at least all the English people and the French people have been speaking about, which is the Kebabji versus Cote Food Group um, decision by the UK um, courts. Um, And so 
it's uh, it reminds us of the Dalai Pakistan uh, decision as well from the English courts and the French courts, where there was a bit of uh, a difference between the two. But I'm just going to pause it there and just write, go right into that Kababji uh, case. So Kababji had entered into a franchise agreement, which contained an arbitration clause with uh, Al-Hamizi Food Stoop Company, which uh, then became a subsidiary of Kut Food Group. And the agreement was governed by English law, and any arbitration arising under it would be seated in Paris. So English law governing law, but seat was Paris. However, the agreement did not specify what law would apply to the arbitration agreement, which, if I may pause here, is in fact something rather common if I'm not mistaken, Brian, you can comment on this as well. But I rarely see an agreement where there's a specific provision governing the arbitration clause itself. Correct. Um, so but here... if, I can, if I can just jump, jump yeah, in, yeah, because yeah, this ahead. is a, a, a part that I don't really understand, because it, it's always been my understanding that the seat is an implicit agreement on the law applicable to the arbitration agreement. Well, At least that's know, the way it is in Sweden. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's that's possibly how it is in Sweden, but there are differences in how you interpret this, and especially under English law, actually. Um, so okay, it's not good. A given. It's not a given. Um, that I'm staying. I'm staying tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so here, that was exactly one of the questions. So, um, so Kababji sought to raise a dispute under the franchise agreement. And it initiated proceedings against Kut uh, Food Group. And sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. I don't know if it's Kut or Kut. Uh, but not against Al Hamezi, who was the counterparty to the agreement, which is interesting because I don't, I don't know why they did this, actually. That's a, that's a question I, I asked myself. I, I have no idea why they went after Kut and not Al Hamezi. But leave it as it is. They went after Kut. And being a non-signatory to the arbitration and arbitration clause, of course, could challenge the tribunal's jurisdiction. So it argued that English law governed the arbitration agreement and that it was a not party to the arbitration agreement under English law. Kababji, on the other hand, argued that French law governed the arbitration agreement and that Kut was party to the arbitration agreement under French law. So the majority of the arbitrators, uh, which were composed by um, Professor uh, Dr. Mohammed Abdel Wahab and uh, Bruno Laurent, uh, whom, uh, in fact, <laughs> is interesting because the English courts noted afterwards when they were criticizing the decision that they were not English qualified lawyers, <laughs> 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 which I thought was very subtle. Yeah. Uh, found that the question of whether Kut was bound by the arbitration agreement was a matter of French law. So they agreed that. But the issue of whether transfer of substantive rights and obligation took place was governed by English law. <clears throat> and they finally went on to conclude that as a matter of English law, a novation was to be interfered by the conduct of the parties, adding quote as the main French C. So, uh, and that as a, as a result, they determined that on the merits, quote was in breach of the franchise agreement. Uh, there was a descending third arbitrator though, and uh, Jewel or Brian, please correct my pronunciation, uh, Mr. Klaus Reichert, Reichert, I'm not sure, sorry. I think um, Reichert. Okay, Reichert. Thank you. Um, thank you. I corrected your pronunciation of Gael, so you get to pronounce <laughs> my pronunciation. We can touch them all now. Yeah, I will never get over that, and I will never pronounce his name out loud ever again since that <laughs> very public humiliation. <laughs> so the descending third arbitrator, Klaus Reichert, uh, who the court noted was an English qualified lawyer, <laughs> Agreed that French law applied to the issue of validity of the arbitration agreement, but it descended by concluding that Kababji's case should fail because if you applied English law, could never became a counterparty to the franchise agreement, which meant that it owed no obligation to Kababji under the franchise agreement and that Kababji had sued the wrong party. So what happened next? Kau filed for annulment in Paris and listeners, in fact, know that the hearings are due this month. We don't know what's going to happen in France yet, okay? But in parallel, Kababji filed for enforcement in London. And so he went to the English High Court first, uh, which found that the tribunal was wrong in concluding that French law and not English law applied to the arbitration agreement. 
Um, but that the high court, it did, however, decide to adjourn the enforcement application pending the completion of the setting aside application before French courts. Um, and that's an interesting point uh, because Kababji then appealed the high court's decision before the court of appeal, arguing that the court was wrong in concluding that English law and not French law applied to the arbitration agreement. And then Kaut also cross-appealed the high court's decision, arguing that the court, having determined that English law applied to the arbitration agreement, should have fully determined uh, Kababji's enforcement application rather than waiting for the French courts to finish ruling on the setting aside. Mm. So they, that was, I thought, very interesting because what happened afterwards was that the court of appeal actually confirmed the high court's decision that English law applied to the arbitration agreement and it also upheld court's cross appeal dismissing Kababji's enforcement application um, and it decided that it wasn't going to wait for the French courts uh, to decide on the matter, saying it was completely irrelevant. So here we are now. Scotland <laughs> <laughs> <Got> from <laughs> the English courts basically have issued that decision, and now the matter is pending before the French courts. And of course, guys, of course, there's a risk that the French courts decide. The, you know, um, uh, uh, that it's not English law that was applicable, but French law that was applicable to the arbitration agreement. And uh, and then, you know, the party's going to left with a situation where what are they going to do? In fact, uh, there's been interesting commentary on this case so far, which I'm going to refer to. Louis Flannery, for example, uh, described the court's reasoning as impeccable. Um, on the applicability <laughs> and, of English and law. he <laughs> should we just add that he is an English qualified lawyer for he what is, is an what English is qualified <laughs> lawyer now just you know I'm not going to go into too much detail because I really urge this, the, the our listeners to to read that decision because it is I think it is very interesting because there is um, the contract actually was defined uh, uh, sorry the the governing law of the contract was English law and I think there was a definition in of the agreement with a capital A, and it contained uh, the arbitration clause in it as well, in the definition. So they just constructed the interpretation of the agreement in a way, uh, you know, looking at the text only, saying that under you know English law, if you look at the interpretation of the contract, then the arbitration clause is itself subject to English law. Right. So in a way, they applied English law to the interpretation of the whole contract and they decided mm. that English law was applicable. Mm. And there's another case, which I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there was another case called Sul America, where the English courts actually decided that there was an, an implied consent of the parties that the arbitration clause would be subject to English law. Um, but here it's not exactly the same because the courts say there's an express consent of the parties that the arbitration agreement would be subject to English law. Um, so I think that's also one of the reasons maybe Louis Flannery <laughs> uh, decides, uh, you know, uh, put that, that the reasoning is, uh, of, the, of the courts is, is good law under English law. However, he also said that, and they, here I quote, by not waiting for the French court's ruling and reopening issues of fact on the issue as to the parties to the arbitration agreement, the court of appeal is running a serious risk of repeating what happened in Dala. So that's the Dala Pakistan case where the UK Supreme Court ended up with egg on its face. <laughs> we, <laughs> we may well be heading towards an unseemly competition with the Paris court of appeal to continue on the metaphor of food. Um, in fact, about the Dala Pakistan case, uh, Alexi Moore um, uh, from the ICC said that, and I quote, an English court applying French law is like a non-Italian chef attempting to cook spaghetti. Even if they use the right recipe, they will never manage to do it correctly. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's is Mic drop. Um, so <laughs> that was the Dalla Pakistan case. So again, a different case. Why? Because in that case, there was no, um, it, it, there was no debate as to whether or not French or English law was applicable. In that case, 
it was French law that was applicable. Okay, but then uh, the English courts applied French law. Apparently, they they were the English lawyers, English judges applying French law, and decided that um, uh, completely uh, differently than the French courts. Um, so. Just a little bit of background, the Dalla Pakistan case, it was an ICC tribunal that applied French law again to the arbitration agreement signed between Dalla and the Pakistan Trust to find that the government of Pakistan, um, because it was continuously involved in negotiating, performing the, and terminating contract, was also a party to the arbitration agreement. And then it eventually ruled that on the merits, um, you know, against Pakistan. Pakistan, of course, sought to annul the award in Paris, which was the seat of the arbitration. And simultaneously, Dalla actually sought to enforce the award in the UK. And the UK Supreme Court denied recognition of the arbitral award following uh, what it termed an independent investigation hmm. of whether the tribunal had jurisdiction. Um, and it said, you know, the court must revisit the tribunal's decision on jurisdiction. And it is neither bound nor restricted by the tribunal's conclusions. And then in it this, yeah, sorry. Sorry, yeah, I have to, I know there's a little bit of time lag, so I had to just raise my yeah. voice because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was, te I was, I was teaching uh, just a few days ago in Uppsala and I was thinking maybe either I made a mistake or the UK Supreme Court has made somewhat of a mistake here because we, we talked about set aside and challenges and ah. the extent to which courts will review jurisdiction at the post award stage. And I said that at the set-aside stage, and in, in our two case examples here, that those are both before the Paris courts, you may, in certain jurisdictions, actually risk or, or uh, actually be rewarded, depending on what you're looking for, that the court will review the scope of the arbitration agreement uh, independently. Whereas, mm -hmm. I said, at the enforcement stage, there is a much more limited scope for the enforcing court to actually re re review de novo whether or not there was a uh, valid arbitration agreement. Here it sounds like the uh, part of the problem was that the UK Supreme Court actually, at the enforcement stage, did a whole new review of the jurisdictional issue, and they did so applying French law, which kind of illustrates why you really shouldn't do that as the enforcing court. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly kind of what happened here. Um, and that is exactly what um, this decision from the English courts were criticized about. Um, and they explained that it was, you know, applying French law, which um, reflected uh, in, 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 this, in this decision. Um, <clears throat> and the UK Supreme Court then held that there had been no common intention for the government of Pakistan to be a party to the arbitration agreement etc etc um and and you know i thought this was very also interesting not so we're, we're going to go to the battle of the seats in one second but the core difference between english and french law as to interpretation of contracts here is pretty clear because in the Dalai pakistan case um here the english court actually um they didn't look at uh at the pre-contractual negotiations and what had mm -hmm. happened before. And that is actually pretty, um, you know, English, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very, very on brand, very exactly. common law on brand. Exactly, exactly. Because the French would look at, you know, not only the contract, but also the party's behavior before the contract, etc. The English courts are, you know, the common law approach more generally. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, making a caricature here, but I think we could say that it's true, that they would look at the, a reasonable com commercial expectation of the parties, and um, and they would also look at the text itself uh, of the contract only. So that is a core a core difference. So that is again an example of two cases. So Dalla Pakistan, and again this new one, this Kababji case, where the English and the French courts are. Um, in competition, I think we can use the word. I think we can definitely use the word <laughs> competition. I think there is active competition going on here between the two seats, and even more so, I think after Brexit, where uh, you know the courts have to reinvent themselves. I think <laughs> to be more or less pro or um, you know attract parties to uh, to have arbitration there. So now I'm going to ask you guys a question. We're going to go more generally. I'm going to leave the Kababji decision and talk about the battle of the seats. What do you think makes the core difference between the two seats? And I know I'm putting you guys on the spot here. 
Uh, but just, you know, anything you think would be the main difference. I'm sure, uh, Brian, at least, you have handled cases in both seats, right? Yeah, I have. And do you, I mean, even without going maybe in the detail of the substance of the law, I mean, is there something that you remember being different? Oh, God. I mean, I, I haven't had a case where we've <laughs> gone into court practice um, okay, okay. Uh, analyzing it, so I can't really give you okay. a succinct answer. No, no, no. But that's, that's you know, more generally speaking, that's that's usually what people would say. I mean, if you look at the Queen Mary uh, Widen case 2018 survey, London and Paris are pretty close. Um, and in fact, London, in the latest version of the survey, had 64% of, I think, uh, respondents who said that their preferred seat was London and Paris was the 53%. So the top two seats were London, Paris, before Singapore, Hong Kong, Geneva, New York, and Stockholm. So the main European seats are London and Paris, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, so there's different tools, you know, when available in an arbitration, you could look at the GAR CRP seat index, you could look at some tables made on core, you can look at different, you know, articles, there's so much written about this. But I have to say, there's really nothing out there that would really compare the, the two, um, you know, specifically, I think, and that would give us an approach of what is better or what is not better. <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, we talk about um, the pro, yeah, pro arbitration uh, aspect of the courts or their, their supervisory jur jurisdiction. I mean, it's pretty much the same. Now, one thing that I have noted that is actually different is, you know, and leaving aside here the interpretation of the arbitration agreement, because it kind of seems that you could say that the French have a more extensive interpretation of the arbitration agreement versus the English courts, um, is um, their approach to setting aside awards. And here, Joel, you mentioned it earlier. Um, in fact, France, and I know there are other jurisdictions, but not that many, um, that actually recognize that you could enforce an award um, even if it was set aside at the seat of the jurisdiction. I think that is right. very... Yeah. That's a main very, one. Yeah, that is a main, like, you know, the, the Frenchness of the approach, which, in fact, the French would say is not French at all. It's the international version of arbitration. <laughs> the whole world is international, okay? So... We don't care what happened at the seat. We look at it again. Um, but um, but this is you're, you're you're absolutely right, of course. But this is not something that is formally speaking, just you know, a, a legal thing because it's mm -hmm. the same New York Convention that governs yes. the enforcement of citizens, and it's just the New York Convention gives the court at the enforcing jurisdiction the the discretion to do it. So that could happen in London too, if they yes. wanted to. It's just more of a it's more like a general philosophy approach thing than it is a legally codified thing. Yes, I think that is true, but it is the French court's interpretation, I think, of, of you know, yeah. uh, more, I mean, the jurisprudence of the case law on this has been more the French that have been saying this in the interpretation of the New York Convention, but you are absolutely right. There's another thing, and that is something that came up on a practical matter uh, multiple times, actually, um, in, in, our, in our firm is the possibility for English courts to um, uh, issue uh, worldwide uh, freezing injunctions. Do you have any experience with this, uh, Brian or, or Jill? Does that ring a bell to you guys? I've seen... Not, not, yeah. Go no, ahead, Joel. Go, go, go ahead, bro. No, no, no. Okay. I've just if said you've that, seen I, anything... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've seen um, worldwide freezing injunctions you've also seen like anti-suit injunctions you've seen um, yeah. the kind of the court's ability to take those intermeasures does differ between the two definitely yeah i mean anti-suit injunctions i think and we're going to talk a little bit more about this um in the context of brexit but anti-suit injunction i think it's pretty much the same um you know whether you're before the french courts or the english courts um i don't think actually it's it's neither of the Either the French law or the English law expressly provides for their power to do so, but they might be able to do, do so and take so, such measures. Okay. Um, but a worldwide freezing order is very much an English thing. And so it's an order 
that is an injunction granted by the English courts to restrain individuals or businesses from disposing of or dealing with assets on a worldwide basis. So the order can be sought before or contemporaneously with proceedings being issued or even after judgment had been op uh, obtained to prevent the disposal of assets before judgment is satisfied. And it can be ordered in a London seated arbitration and is a unique feature for arbitration in London because you have to demonstrate there's a link, a, connect, you know, a connection with London. Even if your assets are not in London, if you have a seat in London, you can go ahead in the courts and get a worldwide freezing injunction. And that really is effective. I can tell you that. I mean, you know, we've done a couple. And if you get a worldwide freezing order um, against, uh, you know, um, uh, an individual, which is also the uh, an, an important thing to note, or a business, then it really has a strong effect, I would say. And in your... In your research or practice, is that an enforceable decision by the English court and other jurisdictions? Yeah, absolutely. If you get a worldwide freezing order by an English court, it is pretty much, I mean, again, like your question is whether you can enforce it in the other jurisdictions? Yeah, I could see, I could see another jurisdiction saying <clears throat> this is a decision by the English court. That's great that they're able to do that, but that means nothing in our country, so we don't need to enforce it. So, so practically speaking, you can get those against uh, bank accounts. And so you've got a lot of bank, uh, you know, um, uh, that oh, have yeah, branches here in the UK, right? So mm -hmm. if you get an order against, I don't know, like um, uh, whether it's the, any Barclays or any of those banks, like they're, I, I think it is very unlikely they're going to be like, oh, you know, who are the English courts? Uh, you know, we don't care. Right. Um, they're really, yeah, it's really efficient uh, order. Now, I don't, I, you know, maybe I'm making too much out of this and I would welcome comments from our listeners on this, but this is not something uh, that you can get in, uh, in any other jurisdiction, this worldwide freezing thing, uh, order. Um, you know, you can get injunctions, of course you can, but this is really the reach of it is so huge. And again, again, London being the financial is it still the, line, the financial center of the world? I'm not even sure now that we have Brexit, but let's say it still is. <laughs> right. Um, it, it has an impact. One of them. That. Yeah, one of them. One of them. Sorry, I know. I, I remember Julia loves New York. New York is also a big uh, financial <laughs> center. Um, so talking about Brexit, actually, uh, a lot of people... No, can I, be, be, before yeah, yeah, yeah. we... Can I, I throw a hand grenade in there since I'm the only neutral one on this podcast because I don't practice <laughs> in, in either London or Paris. I have no, no skin in this game. I think both in Paris and London that the local bar is annoying, but for different reasons. Go ahead. I think that because, of course, you have to retain local lawyers at the post-award stage in both places. And that is true regardless of which jurisdiction you end up in. But in mm -hmm. France, they speak French which for the average run-of-the-mill international arbitration is kind of a problem because you have to do the whole post-award thing in a different language. So you need French lawyers or French-speaking counsel to do it. Whereas mm -hmm. in London, you have this strange, to the neutral observer at least, strange division between solic solicitors and barristers and the amount of money the latter charge for the work, which is confusing to the average arbitration consumer again. So I think both, I guess you will turn this around and say that this is just, you know, uniquely internationally minded local bars, whatever. But just as a provocative point, I think they are very specific, both of them, but in different ways. Brian, do you want to respond to that? Well, I was just going to say, I haven't, I remember in one of our previous episodes, we talked about uh, the Paris court saying that you can do it in English now. Yeah, actually, I was just going to say that just recently they created... Um, an international chamber exclusively focused on appeals against first instance decision in cross-border commercial matters and some other specific matters, um, such as setting aside proceedings against arbitral awards rendered in uh, Paris and challenges, in fact, against their orders, enforcement orders, um, in order to, um, you know, to, to ensure, in fact, exactly to address that issue. That and that was post-Brexit. There was a whole push yes. in the Netherlands as well. All oh, right, but but does that mean that that Brian Carrick of uh, London Law Firm, London Law Firm LLP, can just show up and plead in in his native language, or would he have to do it even before this specialized chamber in his uh, moderately uh, proficient tourist French? So, I think, and I don't want to 
so again, I'm putting a caveat here, sorry, because I don't want to say something with certainty. I'm not 100% sure. But from what I remember, you can produce evidence in English and you can produce uh, memorials and everything in English mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure about whether you can plead in English, but I, wouldn't, I don't think why you wouldn't be able to do so. But in any event, you know, you don't really plead that much in, before the French courts. Uh, right. But they have made a really big push to, um, you know, accept those things in English now uh, post Brexit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That. That's a good yeah. a good bridge back to the Brexit discussion, I guess. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But also to address your point about the division between solicitor and barrister, I don't, I don't know if that changes much. To be honest, Joel. I mean, I myself was confused when I moved here. Um, but it's just a way of, of dealing with things. I think if you are going before the courts, you just need to hire. Um, you, I, I think you just hire a set of lawyers and then they take care of everything. So they're, the solicitors are like, oh, we actually need to work with this barrister or whatever. And then, um, and then they do that. But I, I can yeah, see my, the perception. The, the, the fees, maybe. Uh, more than 15 times have I heard non-English parties claim that it's very expensive to go to English courts in some sort of supportive procedure yeah. related to an arbitration because the local lawyers are so expensive. Yeah, I mean, that's also what the French would say, definitely, that the English yeah. are much more expensive than the French. They are. And in fact, mm. practically speaking, a lot of our clients have often said that they would prefer going to Paris because they think it's cheaper um, than, than London uh, because of that. The fees of the lawyers, the cost of the proceedings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's... Uh, that's also one of so the nice, yeah, nice ahead, job turning into a, a, a pro Paris argument. That no, I want to be totally <laughs> neutral. <laughs> I know. I, I, we, none of us are taking any position here. I think it's very difficult to <laughs> to separate the two. Um, so, I, and, and the and the Brexit thing. I think there's been a lot of talk already on whether or not Brexit would impact. London is the core seat of arbitration, and we've seen in the numbers recently that that hasn't really changed, at least in the past um, years. And the discussion of Brexit has been going on for a while, even if it just happened now, and it will be implemented by the end of the year. People are still going to London and using London as once it's the top seat of arbitration. One of the discussion, I think, and which is what I remembered, is the West Tankers case. Do you guys remember the West Tankers case in the UK? About anti-suit injunctions, not really. Does that ring a bell at all, or not? Yeah, the not name really. rings a bell, of course. So it was that decision where um, the English courts um, confirmed the approach that you cannot issue an anti-suit injunction against a European court because it would be contrary to um, European law, which kind yeah. of makes sense, right? Because under the European Union, you wouldn't be able to force any other jurisdiction or prevent another jurisdiction from um, doing anything. Um, so that's, that was the European law application. And so the consequence of this is that if, the, it's not if now, it's when, <laughs> when the UK will get out of the European Union, then that would technically mean that you could go before a UK court and still get an anti-suit injunction against, say, a Polish uh, court. Of course, I hadn't realized the implication. Of course, that's just obvious when you think of it. So every arbitration-related development in the UK that ultimately emanates from EU law Mm -hmm. will maybe just be moot now and we'll be back to independent English law with no EU law yeah. implications. Exactly. And then also that, you know, to talk a little bit more about investment arbitration now, uh, which this discussion is, is very much relevant for investment arbitration, that is ad hoc. So where you have to choose a seat because some, I mean, I, I know a lot of people know that you know what investment arbitration is but i still talk to some people that are a bit confused about they assume investment arbitration just exit arbitration but you could have ad hoc mm. arbitration of course where the seat uh, you have to choose the seat and and with all the intra eu um saga and the craziness uh, post acmea um i think it would be very very much relevant whether you seek to enforce an award in um, in a European country or a non-European country such as the UK. It will change uh, a lot of things. Except I, I thought 
thought yeah, this would sorry. be a, the, the the first episode we didn't talk about Acmea, but we managed to sneak it in there. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, except of course, if the UK uh, terminates its BITs in any event, which uh, it said it would in its declaration of uh, January right. 2018, 2019. So I'm not sure if that's going to change much, but. Um, so this is it, guys. Um, I mean, I know I've spoken for a long time. I haven't gone in much, too much substance, but I do think there's a bit uh, of questions out there that that people should look into in more detail. Um, this this case, I thought, is very interesting. Stay tuned because it will be before the French court soon, so we will see if there is really a divide or not. And then, more generally speaking, follow up on the London versus Paris divide, which I think is going to be more and more uh, of a divide going forward because they are in active competition now. That, I believe, uh, is a fact. I look forward to the, the Paris court. And yeah. maybe it's uh, if you were to put your money on something, it would be presumably the case that French courts will apply French law. <laughs> That they're going to decide that the French law will apply to the arbitration agreement because of the seat, you think? Yeah, mm. that's my best guess, knowing nothing else. Also because, you know, if you go to a shoemaker, he will make you a shoe. If you go to the French courts, they will apply French law and then you find a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but they will have first to determine the question of which law applies to the arbitration agreement, right? That's the whole thing. Mm, mm. So, so first they'll have to decide that and then... Applying that law, they will have to determine whether or not it extends to um, that other party, the arbitration agreement. So let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen. Actually, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, there is an inclination that they will apply French law, uh, mm -hmm. but but let's see. If you look at the contract, I'm telling you, it's a bit of a difficult one. This one. Yeah, mm. But you know, some judges tend to go with what they know, so they'll they'll get to French law. Because imagine if they choose English law, and then they're sitting there applying English law, then they we're going to have the same like banter commentary between between lawyers saying that they're cooking Italian spaghetti without Italian <laughs> spaghetti. Although the French can cook anything, to be honest, That's right? Uh, <laughs> this is where we end the segment. <laughs> 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 great, great job, Zayel. I think this is really, really interesting. I'm happy we, we did only one substantive segment because this was worthy yeah. of one yeah. major. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. All right, now we are on to happy fun time. We're actually recording this in the morning, so I don't know if you guys are... Uh, devilish enough to open a beer at this moment, but uh, if you're listening to this in the afternoon, join us with a beer. Um, <laughs> but we, I really enjoy this because I have made, I have taken it upon myself to say that an efficient lawyer is a good lawyer and an efficient lawyer knows how to use word effectively. Um, we are masters of word. Um, usually we are working in on a PC so this will be very PC slanted. However, uh, in our preliminary discussions on this topic, I hear that you guys use Macs. Yep, I've, I've never been particularly PC, as you know. <laughs> I, I have, oh, sorry, I'm just gonna say, I have really tried hard to work on Macs during all my um, little time at a law firm so far. Um, and it, I just couldn't, at some point I had to stop because all our servers and everything is uh, PC compliant, right? So yeah. it's, it doesn't work at some point. Yeah. We had co-counsel working on Macs in a case and the back and forth passing of the drafts was a nightmare because it just wasn't compatible. So we had to agree that they, they needed to work in a PC format. Uh, <laughs> so that, obviously, we weren't going to bow down to the Mac. But uh, so sorry if this uh, does not you know address everyone's concerns on the Mac, but um, consult your local resources to find the equivalent. Um, but I think I'm I'm really just gonna rattle off like short commands because I I think it's quite fun. But uh, you guys can hop in on what you think is, um, you know, something that you found to be relevant or particularly cumbersome mm -hmm. for you. Um, the the first one that I want to do is a lot of firms have 
um, pre-programmed formats because and styles they're called. So um, a lot of firms want to have a cohesive draft or a cohesive format. So anytime you know Gide puts out a submission, it looks like a Gide submission, and that goes for all law firms. Um, if you get a draft back from another side and it's in a completely different format, which usually happens, um, you can go into your style uh, templates. Um, so there's short commands for that. But if you go into your Word document mm -hmm. and you go to the styles section, you can actually create um, a new style or create templates based off existing styles. So you kind of highlight it, um, you go to your style guide, and and then you say create new template and in there you can name it you can set the style type what the style is based on if you're basing it on another style you have your indentation you have your spacing on your line spacing you have um whether it's bold italics font um time you know uh color anything that you want to do and then you click okay and then it becomes um, one of the templates that shows up so that when you have a new title, for example, um, all you have to do is click the title one style and your um, title will show up in the exact style that you want, which is very helpful. Um, and, you know, if you get a very uh, unformatted paragraph and you want to put it in your submission paragraph, all you have to do is highlight the paragraph, go to your template, click the paragraph template that you've pre-programmed, and it goes into that font, into that style, into that spacing, and you don't have to sit there with um, your space bar, uh, which I think is very good. And then when you go and make your table of contents, which, um, if you don't know, is um, you usually have a quick command on that on your uh, header of your document, but you insert a table of contents and then your table of contents can actually be formatted to pick up the specific titles um, based off your styles. So you go in and you say, I want um, my table of contents to reflect heading one, two, and three, which goes from Roman numeral one to capital A to, you know, uh, what, what's the other, what is it called? The, the the number one that's not Roman, small Roman or no, normal? No, no, Roman. no. The the like the number one. Petit. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, the French version. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so you get you get those headers in, and you can um, you can set up your table of contents accordingly. Okay, I have a, a a general question on this before we d dive even further. Because this also seems to assume that you can play around a little bit with the various submissions uh, yeah. that have been already entered on the, the record. If not specified in the PO1, do you think you should submit both uh, a doc version and a PDF version or only a PDF version? And if the latter, does that make it more complicated to like copy, paste, and, and play around with submissions that have already been submitted? Yes, that is a very good question for secretaries because, mm -hmm. and I've had uh, tribunals ask for both documents, clearly under the intention that when they write the party's recitals, they want the easy copy-paste format because if you copy, everyone knows because we've tried to copy-paste from, <laughs> from PDF documents, resources that we find online, you get this very horrible thing that yeah. you know, every three words, it just hops to the next line and you have to do your delete space arrow down game where you just delete space error down delete space error down and get yeah. a paragraph i i think it is beneficial for the tribunal to submit a word document however i think it is i think that can be done maybe at a later stage when you get um pre-award or or after the hearing for example you can ask for the party submissions in word i would be hesitant to send another side um a word, a word document word. That could be oh like yeah right or, i would be very uncomfortable I would really be uncomfortable sending a Word version. I mean, of course, if the tribunal asks for it, that's fine. But it's weird, no? You'd yeah. be like, okay, so you're just going to copy-paste my thing, submission? You're not going to really read it and redraft it or reform it? Yeah, and it should know. also, formally speaking, they should also be signed, most of the major submissions at least. And it's kind of yes. hard to, yeah, to sign a Word document. <laughs> oh, you mean you could, but then I'm, not, I'm never going to send through like a signed version of a Word document because then you can copy-paste my signature and just like force the entire... <laughs> Thing. Yeah, and you don't even know it's going to exactly. be on your clipboard because you know when you like edit stuff, it like goes to your clipboard that you can then reinsert back. Um, so you kind of really don't know what you're giving. It's the yeah. same thing with Excel files. Actually, you don't want to submit 
the raw data because they can look into your formulas. Experts usually do that because they want to see how you got to the oh, numbers. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But you submit it in PDF because you don't want it to be changed. And then if experts request it, usually in document production, you'll request um, what uh, the raw files. They, they, have a, they have a specific word of art for that. Um, but you definitely want to submit that in PDF. And then maybe, mm-hmm. maybe those other documents you just send to the tribunal or experts directly. Um, but let's say you have a style and you want and you don't have it in your template, but you just want to make sure that you copy it. There is um, a way to do that. Um, I have to go into my. I'll get to that later. But you, um, you can definitely. Okay, let's say you want to control. You want to copy paste, but don't forget there's special paste. So you right click and there's those icons. And if you drag your arrow over those icons, you'll see that you can keep your source formatting. It's a default option when you press the Control V. You can merge formatting, and that command pastes just the text you've copied, but changes the formatting to match the surrounding text into which you're pasting. And then you have the keep text only, which is removes all formatting from the original text, and the text will take on the default formatting of the paragraph into which you insert the text. I, th- I thought you would read off short commands. This is what Control-Alt-Shift-V, right? Control, exactly. So you, you, exactly, it's control alt Controlled Alt V will get you one. Control Alt Shift V will get you another one. Um, I do the right click because I always like, I, yeah. I never forget what it is. So I right click and you have those icons. Yeah, I think it's easier for me to do the right. I forget unless I really know a, a shorthand like thing command that I use yeah. it all the time. I would usually just go under right click and then see the different options available. So there is yeah. not there very is efficient. Command. <laughs> there is the short command uh, of the control alt v which you said um i don't necessarily do that because i never forget i never remember but i am now putting a guide next to my computer taped up on my cupboard to be able to do this uh another one that i love my favorite one is alt tab which switches between open apps do you guys use that yes Yes, mm-hmm. uh, that is the best one. Um, a lot of people, you don't even need to use multiple monitors if you just control, or if, unless you like Alt-Tab your way through all of them. And if you hold down the Alt and k- keep hitting Tab, you'll get the multiple apps that are open and you can switch between, the, t- between all of them. Um, what about Keep With Next? Um, Control-Shift-Spacebar, what that does, especially if you want your document to look nice and pretty, you don't want your date to be separated, and let's say you're doing it in a footnote, and it says like 20, and then on the next line it says March 2020, you do Control-Shift-Spacebar, um, and that date will stay together. Um, and the same mm. thing um, with a hyphen, Control-Shift-Hyphen, um, make sure that the hyphen hyphenated word stays together. Um, ah, I did not know that. Sorry no, same. This is news to me. Say, yeah. say, say. Uh, <laughs> what about opening the thesaurus? If you're caught on a word, shift F7, highlight the word and shift F7, and you'll get your, um, you'll get your thesaurus in your right-hand toolbar. Uh, let's see. Insert a comment. <laughs> Uh, insert a comment instead of going to reference insert comment it's just alt control m uh, which i like control alt control m well why would you do that why won't you just click on new comment that's like (laughs) one thing i have to press instead of time is money time is money it's avoiding more money for me kind of thing (laughs) like control alt shit what do you say m okay And then, and then instead of just going on nouveau commentaire, you know, just click on it. Because you Tell me. will develop carpal tunnel going back and forth with your to your mouse uh, and your keyboard. Okay. I don't know. Uh, control home and control N gives you bring you to the beginning and the end of the document, which I really like if you're trying to go back to your table of contents, for example, making sure it's updated or going down to the end of the document, making sure how many pages there are, whatever. If you don't have page numbers and you don't know how to read the bottom of your word, you can do control end. Um, I always use the end of line, especially when you're copying and pasting a PDF into a word and you get that weird thing. If you click, if you hit the word end the button end it goes to the end of the line and that's when you do end delete brings up the text for the next line um what about uh move on to the next misspelling there you have alt f7 and if you don't want to go up and go to next and review the um track changes you can just put alt f7 and it'll go to the next misspelling 
insert a hyperlink is control K. Single line spacing, move to double line, is control one versus control two, which is pretty good if you're in. Oh. You want to do, you have, you go into a citation to a paragraph and in your formatting, you cite citations in block text in single line spacing. Just move that paragraph in and press control one and it will bring it to single line spacing. Uh, 1.5 is control five. Uh, <laughs> what? If you, it's if you it's want. great, great content. <laughs> 1.5 line spacing, which a lot of people are using now. <laughs> You guys, okay. this is really good stuff. <laughs> uh, select a word. You guys do this. You can double click. Uh, select entire sentence. Press control while double clicking anywhere in the sentence. Select entire paragraph. Triple click in the paragraph. Uh, control left arrow. Do you guys do that to move between words? Yeah. And uh, control yes. right arrow. Control down arrow. Quicker. Exactly. Uh, and then delete one word to the left, control backspace, or control delete to delete one word to the right. I like do you actually use this? Yes. Huh. You, you basically don't use your mouse when I you're try, driving. I try not to. I find it to be... Uh, <laughs> I love that. Huh. Huh. Do you really use this? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really good. Uh, and the and then well I have indents here but you guys probably don't do that one and then you just have the uh, oh justifying uh, is always good if you want to justify oh, yeah. control L to the left control R to the right or control E to make it uh, center justified mm. uh, but I think those are my main ones I I do I use a lot of like shift left and right to highlight I think that's really helpful to just avoid your mouse really that's that's the point of this whole segment. Avoid your mouse. <laughs> I, had do, I had to do a huge doc review and I basically needed a wrist guard to prevent me from uh, getting carpal tunnel because I was hopping back and forth with my mouse, which is what led me actually to start figuring out short commands better. Um, yeah. And there was an old senior associate at uh, Mannheimer, Robin Relander, who was the king of word processing and he also taught me a bunch of these um, and I noticed that <laughs> my efficiency was was a lot better afterwards. I'm sure it's true. I, I actually, I don't know if you said it, there's one that I use all the time which is the control, is it enter? The one to, to get, um, to skip, uh, sorry, to skip a page? Oh yeah, that, that is control enter or control spacebar jumps down a page as well. Jumps uh, down a page, but if you want to, if you want to like skip a page, you know, like just uh, cut the text and go to the next page and insert like a skip page thing. Uh, oh yeah. That oh, then. Like a page I, break. Oh, page break. Sorry. Thank you very much. I my mind is not working this morning. Yes, page break. That's the one I was talking about. Control. I use that a lot. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good if you're having like titles and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Between <laughs> sections. See, you're using these things. Yeah, I don't know. It's like implicit. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, but not all of them. But you, I would recommend if if it's possible, could you please write those down somewhere so that yeah. we remember them? Yes, then, I will make a guide, and it will be thank you. the the Brian Kotick <laughs> guide to shortcuts <laughs> while processing text. This is great branding. I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I yeah no, I think uh, I think we should all endeavor to implement this. When I see someone go to their mouse, bring the cursor over a word, highlight it, and then right-click copy, and then they go in and right-click paste, I get almost like borderline angry. Yeah, but then that person is older than 50 years old, <laughs> so it's okay. You would be or surprised. Me. <laughs> yeah, you would be surprised. You haven't mentioned the best one. The, sing the single best one okay. hasn't been mentioned because it's so obvious. It's Control-F, obviously. Oh. But that is almost uh, abundantly clear that it's the best function. Find to search for words. That's There's what I. That's yeah. probably my most used comment. It, it, that is a good one. And in the new PDFs, I don't know if um, what version it is, but the new PDFs I found recently, if you Control F and start typing the word, it actually brings a drop down menu of all the words yes. in that document. 
Yeah. yeah, and how often they are mentioned. Yeah. You get a little, like, within brackets, like, nine times in this document. So, like, if you're going through several submissions and you're looking for one specifically defined term or something, you can just see immediately that it's not in yeah. here and they do not address it in this submission. It's probably in some other submission. Exactly. And it's mm -hmm. particularly useful when you have a word that has multiple, like, different endings that could have, like, um, uh, what, what would it be, like... Um, recite, recited, recitation, mm -hmm. like those type of things. All you have to do mm -hmm. is to the beginning. That's a very new feature that I found recently, and I'm just um, very in love with it. <laughs> love with it. It's that, I mean, you know, every profession has their program that they use the most. And I realized like three yeah. years into this profession that Word is basically our, our master. Yeah. Yeah. It's not in design or some cool audio edit program. It's Microsoft Word. It's like the most common right. computer program in the world. That's our special tool. Absolutely. It's true. It's true. We spend all our time on this, don't we? I mean, this is uh, the only, like, I mean, of course, we read also a lot and we spend a lot of time researching and using other tools. But I would say for the drafting, this is, this is it. This is really it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then don't forget, if you lose a draft, you can go into the file, uh, you know, go all the way to the left on your tabs uh, file, and then you can go down to, I don't have my PC in front of me, actually, which is hilarious since we record this on a Mac, but uh, you go down to document properties, I believe it is, properties, and then you can go into previous versions, and it actually shows you unsaved versions. Um, mm. So if you freak out mid-submission that you've lost your draft, try to consult there first um, because some of those autosaves show up um, in the previous versions. Mm, this is a okay. segment for the history books, Brian. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is like when you, I, you try to prove to me that a happy fun time topic is worth addressing. But hopefully I've convinced you um, and hopefully I've helped some people in, the, in their efficiencies moving forward. No, this is great. This is great. Thanks a lot, Brian. I'm definitely <laughs> going to keep note of those. I forgot a couple of them, but I think if, if once you use them all the time, yeah. I think I'm, or maybe if you put stickers on our keyboard or something to help us. So us. funny you yeah. say that. There is a legal keyboard that they've that they've released that has buttons for paragraph, like the paragraph ah. sign. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Why is that mm. on our keyboards? I this is so annoying that it's not on there. I actually have it here. But there are some keyboards that don't have it, right? Yeah. Exactly, and yeah. we should, and they they actually sell it. Um, and all the F F one through seven, they have the the uh, symbol that would come up if you press that with Alt. So um, you could maybe even do that if you if you really wanted to get on the ball. <laughs> Yeah, I think we will do that. Do we get a reduction code or something? Like, yeah, product Actually, minus you know, I'll percent. contact them. I'll contact them. That'd be hilarious. Brian's keyboard. I'm going to pass it. <laughs> well, that's it, you guys. That's all we got. It's a nice and short and sweet episode, but we definitely filled our time. Yes, we did. For sure. I don't think it ended up being that short, actually. No, it didn't. The gift gab on the station. Mm, that's true thank you brian thank you sadia thank you jan thank you rishi thank you i reporter thank you our listeners thank you mom and dad <laughs> thank you joel thank, thank you, you joel. Joel. <laughs> Thanks, <Sadia. laughs> all right guys thank you bye everyone